Today on the Women Mind the Water Artivist Series on WomenMindTheWater.com, I'm speaking with Kara Dodge, a research scientist at the Anderson Cabot Center in Boston. The center is the research arm of the New England Aquarium. Kara's specialty is the ecology of marine animals and more specifically sea turtles. Today, Women Mind the Water talks to Kara about the artistry of her scientific research and her use of cutting edge technology like satellite tagging and drones to enrich our knowledge about sea turtles and the impacts of humans on them. The Women Mind the Water Art of a Series podcast on womenmindthewater.com engages artists in conversation about their work and explores their connection with the ocean. Through their stories, Women Mind the Water hopes to inspire and encourage action to protect the ocean and her creatures. I'm speaking with Kara Dodge. She is a research scientist interested in the biology and ecology of marine animals. Sea turtles can be particularly challenging to study as they migrate over extensive distances. The information Kara obtains using cutting-edge technology like satellite tagging and drones is invaluable when making management and conservation decisions. Welcome, Kara. Your research involves a good deal of creativity and innovation. We appreciate you being here to shed light on the work you do. Let's begin by finding out something about you. Where did you grow up and what sparked your interest in learning more about the ocean? So I grew up in Situate, Massachusetts, which is a small coastal community um, that has a really rich maritime history. When I grew up there, um, there was a pretty um, omnipresent fish fisheries. Uh, we had a fishing pier, a lot of commercial fishermen coming in and out. Uh, there was a, a traditional industry of Irish mossing, shell fishing, so just a lot of ocean uses going on. And so I grew up kind of in that context. Um, so the ocean was sort of ever present in my life based on where I grew up. Um, and my dad used to make fishing rods. So I started fishing and shell fishing when I was probably like, barely old enough to walk. So I've just sort of been in and out of the ocean my whole life. Okay. Well, in an area where it seems you learned a lot about commercial fishing, what led you to a career as a marine researcher? I just have this lifelong fascination and interest in the ocean and in marine animals. Um, so I feel like my career really marries those two interests, the ocean and marine life. In the year after I graduated, I spent pretty much an entire year um, just sort of dipping my toes into different realms of marine research. So I did some work on sea turtles in Barbados. I did some work on sandbar sharks in Delaware Bay. I did some work on um, reef fish in St. Lucia. We were doing some homing experiments with tracking devices. So I was just trying to trying to figure out what I wanted to do um, in my next phase. And then for my PhD, I sort of expanded on that um, by doing a zoology degree, which also included oceanography. So to understand marine animals, um, you really need to understand their habitats um, and what drives their behavior. So you need to understand physical and biological oceanographic processes in the ocean um, and the impacts that that has on their behavior. So that's kind of the path that my career took me. So in my experience, the field of science, at least in the past, when I was studying uh, natural resource management, was a male-dominated culture. What has your experience been? Is the research community in which you work supportive? Yeah, so I think that's I, I think that's a really interesting question. Um, and I would say the culture is shifting. So I would say in the past, as you said, it has been male dominated. And I would go further and say it was white male dominated. Um, and I do feel like there are more and more women being 
rooted into science and that's fantastic. Um, I was recently at a conference and I saw so many, I mean, the majority of presenters were women presenting on this really innovative and exciting research. Um, but what I really want to see, it's not enough in my mind to have more women you know, joining the, joining the field. I wanna see these women in leadership roles. So that's where I think we're still lagging a little bit. We need more women in leadership positions. Um, and one of the goals of my career is to sort of help elevate and promote women into these leadership roles, because that's really where we need to be. Um, and also, I think we do have a lot of work to do in marine science in general on representation and diversity. Um, There's still not enough people um, of, of different backgrounds and races in marine science. So that's where we need to do a lot of work. And that's for both men and women. Um, and for sea turtles specifically, most of the countries where these sea turtles are originating are in the tropics and the subtropics, and we need more representation um, from those areas in, in the research realm. So there's still a lot of domination, I would say, um, with like sort of the white research community, you know, doing a lot of the science. And we need more scientists from the regions where these turtles are, you know, nesting, where these turtles are. Uh, we really need protected areas there, and we need local people leading those efforts. So I think we need to be promoting not only women, but also people in other um, geographic areas. Um, it might be useful here if you provided a brief description of what it means to be a research scientist. Tell us what it is that you do. Yeah, so I think it depends on what field of science you're in, what a research scientist means. So I can speak to my own um, experience, which is really basically in my role, I'm designing research experiments. I'm acquiring the funding and the permits to do the work. I'm doing the field research. I'm analyzing the data. I'm writing the peer-reviewed papers. Um, and that's sort of a continuous process. Um, in addition to that, we also are expected um, and, and desire to do additional services and mentoring. So mentoring students, um, uh, peer reviewing journal articles, uh, serving on subcommittees um, for either government or different groups. For example, I'm on a subcommittee now for looking at offshore wind impacts on sea turtles. So things like that, where we're sort of um, getting outside of the purely academic realm and um, specifically in my role at the aquarium, there's a really strong emphasis on education and outreach and science communication. And so I love that about working at an aquarium. They really value that because we really need to be communicating our science to the public. I'm a firm believer in um, if people don't understand it, they're not going to care about it. So we do a lot of outreach as well. Did you decide that you wanted to work on sea turtles or was it a, something that was presented to you and it looked like a good chance to try it? I would say almost a little bit of both, actually. So in the beginning of my career, I would say I was pretty open. Um, I knew I wanted to do something with marine animals and behavior. Um, and I was very interested, you know, specifically in ocean animals, not freshwater. Um, so I did have some, you know, a variety of research experiences to sort of get exposure to these different fields and the types of people that worked in them, I would say, was part of that as well. Um, so... Part of it, I would say, is part of the opportunities I got was because I did some of those diverse experiences and I had some sea turtle training so that when I was then employed by the federal government for a period of time, they were looking for someone with that sea turtle background. And so that sort of uh, launched me into that role for the federal government. Um, but I also, growing up in New England, I was really fascinated by sea turtles that use these temperate habitats. My father was actually a part-time lobsterman in the 60s and early 70s. And he had entangled a leatherback in his fishing gear. Um, and I grew up hearing this like amazing story of the, you know, 2000 pound, I'm sure it was exaggerated size wise, but yeah, 2000 pound sea turtle that my dad found in his fishing gear. And I just was fascinated. Like what, what are these giant sea turtles doing up here? At the time they had no idea. And what was really interesting is when I started my PhD work in 2006, people still didn't really know what they were doing up here. I mean, they knew more, but there was no basic 
ecological data on leatherback sea turtles in New England or really any other species of sea turtle in New England. So it was sort of, I sort of saw this gap. Um, and of course, being from New England, I, I thought, oh, I could potentially fill this gap and, and do that research myself. How did you feel when you saw your first sea turtle up close? And what surprised you most about the animal or the encounter? So I think probably like many New Englanders, the first sea turtle I saw up close was Myrtle, who's a New England Aquarium giant green sea turtle. Um, I feel like she's sort of the turtle ambassador for a lot of us Northeast people. Uh, but obviously that's different than seeing a sea turtle um, in the wild for the first time. So I, I think the first sea turtles I saw in the wild were nesting turtles. And I think the word that sort of encapsulates the feeling is awe. So you're basically watching this ancient animal do this, basically the nesting process is an ancient ritual that has been largely unchanged for millions of years. So you're getting to witness like this little time capsule. Um, and it's really, if I anyone who has the opportunity to experience this, I highly recommend it because it really is incredible. Um, so, you know, nesting turtles, the feeling would be awe. Um, and for turtles at sea, specifically leatherbacks, which has been my primary um, at sea work focus species, I feel like every time we see one, because they're so hard to find, they're like a needle in a haystack, I feel like it feels like you're basically finding a hidden treasure every single time. It's just like, oh, we found one, you know? It's just, it never gets old, no matter how many of them I've seen. Tell us what they look like. Oh, man. So I've had many people describe them to me as looking like a dinosaur, and I actually think that's a pretty good description. They're very pre prehistoric looking. Um, they are enormous. That's probably the word that first is used to describe leatherbacks. They can be, you know, a thousand to two thousand pounds. They're very, very big animals. Uh, leatherbacks uh, are a really dark color. They're usually black, sometimes with little white speckles. They have this um, really interesting jaw where it looks like they have two fangs on their upper jaw, which is um, an adaptation for grabbing, tearing jellyfish, which is what they eat. They have long, bumpy ridges that run down their shell. They really don't look like other sea turtle species at all. They're the only living member of their family at this at this point in time. Um, so they're just very unique. They're a very unique-looking turtle, very ancient-looking, um, and just huge. <laughs> well, to put an exclamation point by what you just said, you said one to 2,000 pounds, which means they weigh one to two tons. Yeah. Well, yeah, they're, I mean, yes. And so I, you know, logistically working with them is a little more challenging than working with the other species. So how mm -hmm. does one go about studying them? For decades, the only way people were really studying leatherbacks um, and a lot of other sea turtle species as well was on nesting beaches. So basically the nesting females will crawl out of the water to lay their eggs and they're accessible to researchers who are waiting on the beach to attach tags or take measurements or, or samples or whatever they're planning to do. But at sea, which is where they spend the vast majority of their lives, so males, 100% of their lives are at sea. Subadults, juveniles, 100% of their lives are at sea. Females, 99% of their lives are at sea. So you want to be able to capture that information. Um, and so it's very different to try to go find sea turtles in the ocean and catch them and, and collect samples and put tags on them. It's, it's just a lot more difficult. And with leatherbacks, it's extra difficult because they are just so big. So what we did for my PhD project is we actually worked with a spotter pilot. So we'd go out on a boat and then we'd have a spotter pilot flying and he would be looking for the leatherbacks for us and communicating with us on the radio. And when he would find one, we would try to get into position and catch it, catch it, which was the next hurdle was catching these gigantic turtles and then getting them onto the boat. So all of it was hard, like finding them was hard, catching them was hard, getting them on the boat was hard. 
And, you know, I mean, I think a big part of field work in general is establishing connections and relationships. So that's something that I spend a lot of time on. So we work with fish, uh, commercial fishermen to do that project, some of whom I still work with. They're like extended family members at this point. The spotter pilot I worked with for over 10 years before he retired. One of the innovative tools that you're using now are, is a drone, and they're much discussed in the news today. Would you begin by describing what a drone is like, that the ones that you use? Yeah, so the I will say the drone component of our current work, which is um, in Puerto Rico, is really led by my collaborator in Puerto Rico, Luis Crepo. Um, and so he's the one that picked out the drone and decided which parameters um, he wanted to have for that. So he's using a DJI Maverick uh, brand, which is actually a pretty lightweight, relatively small unit that you can buy on Amazon or, or buy, you know, it's commercially available. Any recreational person can have a drone, it seems like. But this one is um, really nice because it has um, two different types of cameras on it. And it allows us to look for leatherbacks at night, which is when um, they nest. So we can be out on the beach at, you know, 1 or 2 a.m. And it's pitch black and that drone can fly the entire beach in less than 15 minutes, um, which would normally take us over an hour to walk the beach to look for turtles. Um, and it can basically see the turtle using um, both a vis visible camera as well as an infrared camera. So in the, in the detail in the video, I was astounded by the detail. You can see so much in that video. You can see what part of the nesting process the turtle is in, whether she started laying eggs. It's just really incredible technology. So how have technology like drones um, mm -hmm. enhanced what you've learned that you didn't have before you had the drones? Well, in Puerto Rico, it's enhanced the project in several ways. One way is that um, in order to cover the beach and get to the turtles quickly to attach tags, we used to have to use an ATV, which um, is, is a great tool, an all-terrain vehicle, but it can be disturbing to the turtles, especially right. during hatching season when the baby turtles are emerging. Like you just have to be really careful with those on the beach. And it, it means we don't have to rely on that as much anymore because the drone can cover the beach so quickly and find the turtles for us. And then we, obviously <laughs> the human element of that is then we have to race to the spot where the turtle is found. Um, but that, that's been really, really helpful. Um, and it's also going to be helpful um, to my collaborator down there in terms of looking at potential threats. So in some some areas of the island, there still is some poaching activity. So he can look for poachers and things like that, which would not really be safe to do on foot, walk, um, walking by yourself on the beach. Um, and also looking at issues with feral animals. So feral cats and dogs are a big issue um, for digging up nests on some of these beaches and being able to identify like what the most problematic impacts are and being able to address those. So you've now pointed out poachers and feral animals are dangers to sea turtles. Yeah. Have you learned about any other dangers facing sea turtles? Well, the leading danger to sea turtles worldwide um, is bycatch and fishing gear. So that is the, I would say that is the undisputed cause of um, global decline in almost all species, if not all species, um, certainly for leatherbacks. Um, so that's that's a very important issue that needs to be addressed. and. So at this point, we know that it's bycatch is the leading problem, but we're at a point where we're trying to figure out which fisheries and which areas are the most problematic so that we can take what we have for limited resources and really focus in on those problem areas instead of just trying to take care of everything, because that's impossible uh, when you have global fisheries and an animal that is a global migrator. A really big issue is gillnets, off of, especially the ones that are set off of nesting beaches. So during the nesting season, both adult males and females will gather off of um, the nesting areas in large numbers to breed. 
and there are gillnet fisheries in those same waters. And so these gillnet fisheries can be taking thousands of these, killing thousands of these turtles in a given season. It's a really big problem. Um, and like this, it's still work to be done there. Um, so bycatch and fishing gear, number one, uh, loss of habitat is a very big problem as well. And that can either be through development of nesting beaches is a big problem. Sand mining in some areas is a big problem um, as well. And of course, sea level rise and increased storm intensity from climate change is actually um, eliminating some nesting beaches already. Living here in Maine, between the lobster fishery and the crab fishery, we have a lot of problems with uh, North Atlantic right whale getting uh, entangled, or there's an argument whether they're being entangled or not, but it seems like North Atlantic right whale are getting tangled in somebody's uh, ropes. So can your work apply to another in, uh, species like the endangered right whale? Yeah, so the entanglement problem is basically the same. It's the same piece of gear. That's the problem for right whales, for leatherback sea turtles, for basking sharks. Um, it's the buoy line of the trap fisheries. Um, so I feel like it's almost the reverse where it's not so much that um, we can help the right whale community, it's more the right whale community is sort of helping us in terms of um, basically less rope in the water is a good thing for all of these marine species. So I feel like the work they're doing with on-demand fishing gear um, at this point, the, you know, right now it's an experimental phase, but if that can actually become economically viable, that will certainly help leatherback sea turtle. So I almost feel like we're watching what's happening with the right whale community and who are on the front lines of this problem and then hoping for some benefit to leatherback. So far, there has not been a gear change that has been beneficial. So the gear changes so far have been um, weak links, things like that, we, a weak link on the line or, um, I'm trying to remember what some of the other fixes are. Um, they just, they don't work. Leatherbacks are not heavy enough to break those lines. A uh, weak rope, that's the other one, weak rope. They're just not heavy enough to break these lines. And so, you know, there may have been an advantage to the sinking ground lines for them. We're not sure because we don't see a lot of, um, we don't have a lot of observations of leatherbacks entangled in ground line. But yeah, certainly, taking that booby line out of the water column will benefit not only leatherbacks, but other species. Yeah, hopefully we'll find a solution before the right whale and yeah. the leatherback go extinct. Finally, Kara, given what you've learned about sea turtles and human interactions, what advice do you have for listeners if they'd like to make a positive difference? It can feel overwhelming when people talk about things like, well, you know, make climate change stop, you know, things that you feel like you have no, not, don't have a lot of control over. But I do think there are things we can do in our daily lives that can be, as a, you know, as a collective can be really impactful. So just making good choices, I feel like, considering the animals that we share our environment with. Um, so keeping sea turtle nesting beaches clean um, and safe and undeveloped is really important. Um, and also making sure our garbage is not entering the ocean, using less. Uh, materials that cannot that can only be used once single use items um, creating less garbage that may eventually end up in the ocean is something that we can all be doing um, you know looking towards if there's an option for your energy sources uh, looking towards maybe a cleaner energy um, these are just like little changes that we can make in our everyday lives but as a collective it actually makes a big difference well thank you so much for being on the women mind the water art of the series podcast I expect listeners have gained a better understanding about what science researchers do, the life of sea turtles, and the growing field of technology 
and it's used in learning about the creatures that live in the sea. I'd like to remind listeners that I have been speaking with Kara Dodge, a research scientist with the Boston-based Anderson Cabot Center, whose work with sea turtles includes the use of innovative technology. Kara Dodge is the latest guest on the Women Mind the Water Artemis series podcast. The series can be viewed on womenmindthewater.com, Museum on Main Street, and YouTube. An audio-only version of this podcast is available on womenmindthewater.com, on iTunes, and Spotify. Women Mind the Water is grateful to Jane Rice for the use of her song, Women of Water. All rights for the Women Mind the Water name and logo belong to Pam Ferris Olson. This is Pam Ferris Olson.